All right, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, we're in Hebrews chapter 6. We were there last time, last week, and uh, we're here again in a different, slightly different place. And we will be again uh, the, uh, the, fa- the next time we return to Hebrews 6. Um, very important and sobering words that the writer has for his congregation and for us as well. So, without further ado... Let me begin by saying that it is amazing uh, how close that you can be to something and yet so far from actually attaining it. We have a saying for this, actually, so close and yet so far. And, And that means something is just within your grasp, but you never quite take hold of it. You can be so close to fulfilling a goal that you never fulfill it or accomplishing an achievement that you never accomplish. It, would be, it wouldn't be so bad if you failed by a huge margin, but you fail by a very small margin, and that can be very frustrating. You let something worthwhile slip through your fingertips. And the harsh reality is that you lose out. What do we call somebody who almost wins? A loser. Now, what is it that we say in these contexts? Well, almost isn't good enough. And almost succeeding is the same as not succeeding. When the final playoff game is over, it's not the losing team that most folks remember, but the winning one, even if they won by just a point in overtime. You might think it doesn't matter, or it shouldn't matter that much, to be so close and yet so far to things in life. And there is something worthy of being a runner-up, or runners-up as the case may be. That's why the Olympics give out silver and bronze. They figure someone who has come so close within milliseconds of winning first, well, deserves to be recognized, even the one who took third. And so if you're the one that almost got the top management position at your job, chances are you still command a good amount of, of respect and are well thought of there. And if you cannot retain the lawyer who graduated top of his class at Harvard Law, then you'll gladly settle for the number two man and hope that the one suing you didn't retain number one. Actually, the way America has evolved over the years, there seems to be, it seems to be that everyone's a winner. You gotten that impression? There are no losers. There are cannot be any losers. That would be discrimination, right? Uh, maybe maybe I, I chose to be in a losing situation. And losers are, well, they're people too, you know. They have rights. Oh, it's so silly, but that's the kind of nonsense the public school system, for example, certainly feeds our youth. We all know that the public school system shies away from healthy competition. Not a good way to prepare children for the real world, though, is it? Where they will lose in life from time to time. Certain movements in our country want to create a fantasy world where truisms like that do not exist. It's just not true of the nature of life. Well, there is one area in life where being so close and yet so far is absolutely not a good thing. It's actually a bad thing, and in fact, it is quite fatal. 
and it is salvation. If one is so close to the kingdom of heaven, but yet so far, he's not recognized for his effort and abilities at the end of time. He receives no consolation prize for being almost a Christian. In fact, the consequence for almost Christians is eternal condemnation in hell. And no one will be celebrating them there. Read the Gospels, or in the Gospels, I should say, the time when the religious establishment wanted to trap Jesus. That was a regular occurrence in Jesus' three-and-a-half-year public ministry, and they sent an expert in the law to question him. Do you remember? Which is the greatest commandment of all, he put to the Christ. And we all remember this account. It's in all three synoptic Gospels, but Mark is the only one that includes an extended word on what came after. Jesus had a brief conversation with this expert after he answered correctly. We read in chapter 12 that the expert agreed with Jesus' answer, and not only agreed, but repeated what Jesus said favorably. He appreciated Jesus' summary of the law. The context suggests that the lawyer was actually sincere, even even though those who put him up to this kind of trap were not. Jesus replied a second time, and his reply in verse 34 is both remarkable and frightening. It says, when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. How is that remarkable and frightening? You might be wondering, How could it be both? Well, it's remarkable that someone could be so close and yet so far from being a true believer. That's what's remarkable about this, that he he could have the correct understanding of the essence of the true faith without actually trusting Jesus. Please understand, being so close to salvation means that you still stand condemned, right? No matter how close this man was to being converted, he was still lost. And that is the frightening part. Jesus' words obviously meant were meant to encourage this man to believe and take the extra step and exercise faith in Christ. Did he? We'll never know this side of heaven. But what we do know is that there are many in God's church who are so close to the kingdom and yet so far, and they don't even realize it. They think that they are believers, many of them, because they, well, are caught up in in, in the whole Christian scene, they help organize church cleanup days every quarter. They serve food at the church's food drive for homeless people. They sing in the choir. And some even receive baptism and hold membership at these churches. Make no mistake, they are not born again. They think they are, maybe even led to believe they are, but they are not. They are so close and yet so far. If there is anything scarier than being an almost Christian, it is being one without realizing it. Jesus tells us that some almost Christians won't discover their counterfeit status until the day before the day when they stand before him in judgment. And then it will be too late. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? 
and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. Being as close as possible to salvation without actually having it is not an admirable thing. Such a person is still depraved, according to, according to this passage, and if his status doesn't change, he will be cast into utter darkness in the last day. There is nothing sadder or more tragic than a counterfeit Christian. If you want a sobering read, and this is not something you want to read right before you go to bed, take up Matthew Mead's Almost Christian Discovered, but make sure you're secure in your faith before you read it. Some of the table of contents uh, I could rehearse with you give us an idea of where Mead is going. How far may a man go in the way to heaven and yet be but almost a Christian? He says it's shown in, in 20 several steps. I won't read all 20, but just give you an idea. A man may have such knowledge and yet be almost a Christian. That is, saving knowledge. He may have great and eminent gifts, yea, spiritual, and yet be almost a Christian. He may have high profession of religion be much in external duties of goodness, go far in opposing his sin, hate sin and be but almost a Christian. Uh, he may make great vows and promises, strong purposes and resolutions against sin, maintain a, strife and combat, maintain a strife and combat sin in himself, be a member of a church of Christ, have great hopes of heaven, be under the visible changes and yet be almost a Christian, very zealous in matters of religion, be in much prayer, may suffer for Christ and yet be almost a Christian. It goes on and on. And Mead is exactly right. It is a book worth digesting. Perhaps we all know someone who was almost a Christian and shocked to discover this when he or she fell away. I've known several almost Christians throughout my ministry. Some were on fire for a while. They studied the Bible. They knew their theology. Some even graduated Bible college and seminary, only to fall away and join organized religions like Greek Orthodox, even cults like Jehovah's Witnesses. I once sat under a pastor in my Cambridge days, my wife and I both, for nearly four years was a good preacher, co-wrote co a handful of books with D.A. Carson, who would come uh, periodically and share the pulpit there, and then one day just denounced it all and walked away. We scratch our heads at these extreme cases. We, we know that they were never saved to begin, else, begin with, or else they wouldn't have abandoned the faith. We get it. But what is so bewildering is that they can be so close, so genuine, or look so genuine, have such a deep knowledge of scriptural truth, even teach and counsel others and be of help to them, only to discover that they did not believe any of it in the end. As I say, remarkable and frightening. In Hebrews chapter 6, we're looking at verses 4 to 8, the writer deals with this very context. It's meant to be remarkable and frightening, I'll tell you right up front. Remember, he has interrupted the flow of his argument 
on the topic of Jesus' high priestly ministry to bring his third admonition to the congregation. It divides into three parts or aspects. We examined the first already. That's chapter 5, verse 11, right to 6, verse 3. That was last time. We look now at the second of the three. That's chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. And it is by far the most sobering. It hits us right between the eyes. It injects a bit of sober-mindedness into us, and it calls us to self-examination. The purpose of such a section is, of course, to encourage real pretenders who are active in the church, like, well, the expert in the law of Jesus' time, who are so close to the kingdom, yet so far, to wake up and trust Christ. Now, I'd like to rehearse this section with you, I want to do it in three parts. I've published it for you in the bulletin so you can follow it um, with ease. What I didn't put in there are the four implications that I'd like to draw at the end. So you might want to leave a little room for that. The first part talks about unbelievers who share in our Christian experiences. The second shows them falling away from the truth in spite of their experiences with no hope of repentance The third gives the reason for this and illustrates why this outcome cannot be otherwise. So let's take a look. Here we go. Part one. Part one says this. It is possible, it is possible, in fact probable, for an unbeliever to experience firsthand a good deal of the Christian faith without actually becoming a Christian. Probable. You might want to scratch out possible and put probable in there. Here's what it says. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, beginning at verse 4, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, verse 5, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, verse 6, and then have fallen away. Make no mistake, these are unbelievers in the church. We know that because of the last phrase, have fallen away. It's a technical phrase, for apostasy in the book of Hebrews, and we'll get to that in due course. I also want to point out to you that if you look up these particular experiences that we read, there are five of them in all, positive experiences, you'll find that none is ever used anywhere else in the New Testament to describe conversion or salvation. Not one of them. Most likely, then, none should be in this passage either. And the reference to them having fallen away almost confirms this. So let's begin with the first experience in verse 4. In the case of those who have once been enlightened. As you might guess, the writer refers to those who have been educated, in this case, in spiritual truth. Some who, someone who's enlightened has come, of course, to understand some portion of God's truth. In this context, uh, Uh, It would be all that is needed for conversion, would be the gospel truth. They had been apprised fully of gospel truth. They understood its content and they understood its implications. It was common in the ancient world to use light in the connection with knowledge. We do the same thing today, right? We say, well, finally I saw the light. Or, oh, I don't know what you mean. Please enlighten me. Or maybe it suddenly dawned on me. We we know what we mean. Those are uses of enlightenment that obviously come from a literal context where light, we use light, to help see our way in dark places, right? 
So the Apostle John uses light figuratively in his prologue, chapter 1, in verse 4, 5, and 9, to refer to Jesus as the embodiment of divine truth that would educate mankind about salvation and show them the way out of the darkness of their depravity. Here's how he puts it. In him, that is Christ, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This was the true light that came into the world and lightens every person. Now, let's understand that to be enlightened with spiritual truth says nothing about whether you respond to that truth. It's not part of the enlightening. That's why John is quick to add in verse 10, and the world did not recognize him, just so there are no mistakes. Many people, as Isaiah prophesied a few hundred years before this, sitting in darkness saw a great light. And that light was Jesus, the Messiah. The world saw in their darkened and depraved condition the light of God's truth manifest in the flesh, in incarnate flesh, in Jesus' miracles and preachings and teachings, in the way he showed up the religious leaders and how he spoke with authority or healed the blind and the lame, raised the dead. Yet, in all this, with all this confirmation, they remained unconvinced and did not go on to believe him or follow him. In this context of Hebrews, the writer means to say then that it is possible for someone in the church to be so enlightened by divine truth, to sit under the teaching of the word and understand basic concepts, perhaps even deep concepts at times, whether or not he ever embraces it. What else does it say? Well, it says that he's, a t he's tasted of the heavenly gift, also in verse 4. When the New Testament speaks of a gift in connection with the faith, it refers to a few different things. For one, the Holy Spirit himself, that Luke says is a gift of God, Luke eleven thirteen. Since the writer emphasizes the Holy Spirit in the next phrase, he most likely does not mean the Holy Spirit is the gift here. Paul calls Jesus God's indescribable gift in 2 Corinthians 9, 15, and of course, salvation, which is so tightly linked with Jesus, is also a gift from God, Ephesians uh, 2.8. It's, it's, a, it's a gift from God. Now, since the context is about belonging to, Christ, to the Christian faith, the gift here most likely refers to salvation that comes by the gospel. But the word taste concerns us more. What does it mean to taste salvation? Literally, taste means to ingest something, like drink or, or a meal. Have you ever tasted Glenn's homemade pastries? They're out of this world. But taste can also mean experience. I got a taste for this. And here, experiencing the gift of salvation. Now, that sounds an awful lot like conversion. But this word is never used outside of Hebrews as a synonym for conversion. Remember, none of these experiences is. In keeping with the idea, not uh, so close and yet so far, we should think in terms of a person experiencing the saved life as much as possible without himself actually being converted. 
An unbeliever that attends church regularly uh, is in and among God's saints, experiences how saved people commune with God and with each other, how they handle trials, how they love people concretely and enjoy God's blessing. And this unbeliever comes as close to the saved life as possible, as he possibly can come, while still being lost. Let me also say that the unbeliever's experience of the saved life is all the more heightened if he is led to believe that he is saved. He might join in at prayer meetings or be told that he needs to pray to God's will for his life. And then he mistakes a favorable outcome as God's answering him. He might even be involved in helping someone through difficult time with a particular scripture that he himself learned when he was in Sunday school just the week before. And he feels good about himself because he thinks God has used him to help somebody else. This is not, if this is not astounding enough, then listen to the next one. Having been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now that seems like a, a diff- difficult one to get around. What does it mean to put to be put in a position where you can partake of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's helpful to know, first of all, that the word partake occurs only one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Luke chapter 5. And there it means partner. In verse 7, Simon Peter and his fishing buddies signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. To partner with somebody means to share in the same experience. This is the idea that the word has throughout the book of Hebrews. The NIV captures it very well here. Have shared in the Holy Spirit. So how does an unbeliever share the Holy Spirit with believers? Well, the same way that many of the ungodly Israelites who came out of Egypt under Moses' leadership shared God's Spirit with them by witnessing and benefiting from the Spirit's work on on behalf of God's people, who they were in and among. The same way that, that Israel shared in the Christ, who was among them and who Peter said was a man accredited by to you by God through miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Potiphar experienced the great blessing of God's Spirit because Joseph lived in his house. If there were those among these Jewish Christians that were not genuinely born again, but carried on as if they were, they would have had many opportunities to share the blessings of the working of the Holy Spirit in the church as a whole. They would have seen the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the real Christians in the form of spiritual gifts that these Christians would have used for the good of the body, Spiritual gifts, you know, are manifestations of the Holy Spirit, but they can also be counterfeited, too. And almost Christians may have practiced what they thought were spiritual gifts after the manner of the church members and thought that the Spirit indwelt them, too. They might have even gone through a a membership process and received the laying on of hands. So let's understand that unbelievers in the church can be associated with the work of the Spirit that he does through the activities of the church. We'll see more of this in verse 5. Here in verse 5 it says, Have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. 
It just keeps getting <laughs> more intense, doesn't it? Any counterfeit Christian in the church, and, and even unbelievers who did not outwardly profess to be a Christian, but were simply interested in frequenting church activities, would have sat under the teaching of the Word. They would have experienced just how refreshing it is to receive direction in life, answers to life's problems, encouragement to press on, and how applicable God's truth is to real life. There is an example of this in Mark 6. I love biblical examples especially. Herod had a fascination and a great respect for John the Baptist, and he wanted to hear his teaching regularly. Even though John at times rebuked Herod for marrying his brother's wife, that is, Herod's brother's wife. Listen to the testimony in verse 20. This, this is Herod's, Herod's desire. It says, Herod feared John, protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, but he liked to listen to him. And he would have gone on listening to him if it weren't for Herodias, his wife, who hated John and had him executed. As far as we know, Herod never became a believer, but he enjoyed listening to John. He experienced the goodness of the Word of God even though he didn't embrace it. Now some take good word here as a, another way of referring to the good news, that is the gospel. It surely would include the gospel, but it likely refers to the whole corpus of apostolic truth. And those unbelievers that hear it experience some of the blessings that come with it. Uh, but there's more. Having experienced the powers of the age to come, this sounds rather ominous. What's it about? Well, it's not what most people think it's about or think it means. It's not really a reference to the miraculous signs and wonders that lots of churches in America today pretend to have authority to practice. The meaning is much fuller than this. We can explain it this way. Christians belong to a divine kingdom, right? We are citizens of a divine kingdom, a new age that will at some point become reality at the end of time as we know it when the Lord ushers it in. Christians belong to this kingdom now and they experience the power of that kingdom, of this coming age, even now when they overcome temptation and particular sins in their lives, when they imitate Christ, when they fight the good fight with supernatural weapons and armor, when they turn their trials into platforms for ministry and glorify God, when they have their prayers answered and they see the intervention of God in the midst of unbeatable odds, when they see his sovereign hand at work. This is such a powerful, immovable, stable, bold life, a life that belongs to the coming kingdom. It's unique to Christianity and foreign to a worldly existence. Now there are certainly times when unbelievers that associate themselves with the church for whatever reason get caught up in this wonderful lifestyle. They glimpse the experience firsthand, the power of the coming age through the activities of the church. In fact, some of them who may 
give the impression that they are believers, get involved in these activities, in outreach, in various ministries, as we noted. And their experiences in the church can lead to a preliminary positive response, but not full Christian conversion. Just as those in the three uh, in the three soils of Jesus' parable, or the false disciples in John six who followed Jesus for a while until they understood what he was really asking. Finally, it says, "And then having fallen away," in verse six, it's the first part of verse six. Verb translated fall away occurs only here in the New Testament, only here. Context of this small section would demand then that the meaning of fall away from uh, uh, or, or falling away uh, in, in this context would be from the truth, the ideal, the standard, in this case apostolic truth. The writer is talking about apostasy. This is, this is a case in which faith proves superficial not genuine. So we come to part two then, where we plug this whole description into its proper context. It is impossible, the writer now says, for the unbeliever who, whose, heart has, whose heart becomes hardened to the Christian faith that he has experienced to be saved. Impossible. Notice that the main sentence begins in verse 4 with it is impossible and then picks up right in the middle of verse 6. Uh, we can read it this way, for it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. That's the main sentence. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Who? The ones we've just talked about in the second part of verse 4 all the way to the first part of verse 6. Those. I began our study by referring to this section as remarkable and frightening. The writer's words are just that, and to make his point firmly and seriously, he gives this information in verses 4 to 6 in one long sentence in Greek. There are no breaks. This is one long sentence. Those who experience the Christian life to the degree that the writer talks about in the first part, only, uh, only to fall away, cannot be restored again to repentance. This is one sentence. That's the statement he wants us to understand. That's his statement. Now, this is really the crux of the matter. These sobering words are so final, so absolute. We might call them 100% words, right? Impossible to restore. Come on, do you really mean that? Yes. Impossible to restore. You might be used to hearing this kind of talk outside the church, but not inside at least not in American Christianity. Maybe it's, maybe it's time that churches in America become accustomed to more frankness. Well, but it sounds so serious, so, so final. Yes, it's meant to be. Just on the face of it, the writer seems to be saying that those in the church who were in a place where they were ready to repent, but then fell away from the truth, the technical word is apostatize, have no chance of being brought back to that place of readiness to repent. Now maybe you're wondering if this can actually be right, Pastor Bob. Maybe you got it wrong. After all, it, 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 it is true, isn't it, that 
that all depraved people reject God's Christ and his gospel. All of them do. These, these are a people that God saves. As long as a person is alive, he always has that opportunity to repent. God is a loving God, isn't he? He's patient and merciful and kind and gracious. He's fair, right? He of all beings should understand people and that the depraved heart is fickle. Oh, God understands people just fine. In fact, better than anyone else can. He created them. He knows the tragic effects of sin in the human heart. He was the one who said that the human heart is sick and above all things desperately wicked. He was the one who said the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. So how do we reconcile this? Well, we see first that there is a condition, a state at which some unbelievers enter where they can come to know all there is to know about the simple gospel truth. They know what it means to be saved and even experience all they possibly can experience about the Christian life as unbelievers. This is a sweet and opportunistic state where unbelievers are as ready as they will ever be to repent, to commit to Christ. That was certainly the case with these unbelieving Jews among the Christians of this particular congregation. They grew up on the covenants of God, learning the Torah, knowing the Ten Commandments. Grew up hearing the true accounts of God's champions like David and Elijah. At some point they were introduced to the gospel and taught that Jesus is the Christ and that the Christ had to suffer and die and rise again from the dead and fulfilled the old covenant, to secure salvation for God's true elect. They knew all this. Perhaps these unbelievers might have have witnessed the body endure rough persecution for their faith. Most likely they did. They were starting to understand what it means to follow Christ. They were exposed to the working of the Spirit in the lives of his saints and, as we said, had experienced all that they could as unbelievers just before they fell away. There's nothing more that they can experience or know. They simply need to embrace what they had experienced and commit their lives to Christ. We see, second, that the writer states quite emphatically how it is impossible to bring an unbeliever who has experienced as much as he possibly can of the Christian faith to to bring him back from rejecting it, back to that opportunistic place where he was ripe for believing. The word impossible means just that. It does in chapter 6, verse 18, where the writer uses it to say how it is impossible for God to lie. Or in chapter 10, verse 4, where he says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And then finally in chapter 11, verse 6, where without faith it is impossible to please God. If the word meant anything else, then these contexts would make no sense. It is safe to assume that it has the same meaning here in this chapter. And that is, it is impossible to restore a hardened apostate to that place of excitement and readiness to repent. That's exactly what it means. I might put it this way. The unbeliever robs himself of the opportunity to ever be there again 
and ever come to the point of genuine repentance. You see, in one sense, let me, let me just explain this to you, and I, and I think it's very important that you get your arms around this. Okay? In one sense, all unbelievers are in the same boat with regard to salvation. All of them. Same boat. They cannot earn it or buy it or inherit it or, st or steal it. They have to be given it. Since all depraved fall short of the glory of God, they are all equally lost. So far, so good. However, the Bible is clear that they, they do not receive the same degree of punishment. This is probably a topic that you've either never heard before preached in churches or very, uh, very infrequently have heard, maybe next to never. In light of this, we can talk about one unbeliever being closer to the kingdom than another, even though both are completely lost, and that one that came closest to it without embracing it faces a far greater condemnation than those lost who are not close to it at all. Those who have received the most knowledge about God's saving truth and experienced the life of salvation firsthand by being with the body of Christ are held more accountable for what they know and will reap a greater punishment. Now, I didn't make this up because it's, it's nothing that I could ever make up. I don't think it's anything that the human heart would ever want to make up. The key to getting our arms around this is to see that the end result of falling away mentioned here is a particular condition in which a person's heart is so hardened to the real gospel and really wants nothing to do with it, even flat out refuses to worship God in the way that he has dictated and to come to him and be saved through the only means that he has ordained. So, for example, people who claim to worship God in their own way. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I worship God my own way. Thank you very much. Not interested in what you have to say. Don't take it personally. I like to worship God my own way. Who claim that God is so good that he will accept other means of salvation. I know this guy. He's a great guy. He's morally good. He's, he, 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 he outdoes most people in the church that I know in the area of morality. I mean, I've never heard him talk about the gospel or say that he accepted Jesus, but look, I mean, let's be honest. He's got to be there. People who respect God's Bible but put extra biblical writings on equal plane. Catholic Church does this. Jehovah's Witness does this. Mormonism does this. It is... It is the attitude, really, that says, I don't believe that God condemns my living with a woman. After all, we are or we have been together for years. We love each other, and her kids have a father figure in me. Besides, God is more concerned about bigger things in life. Yeah, that's what it says. I think God makes exceptions. It's this kind of attitude we're talking about will never turn again to that place where they once enjoyed being so close and ripe for repentance. With all that said, we move quickly to the third, the third section, which is the, the reason why this is true. 
It's in the last part of verse 6 all the way to verse 8. The reason it is impossible for that unbeliever that falls away from such an auspicious and advantageous position outlined in verses 4 to 6 to turn to the Lord in repentance is this. Once having fallen away, he becomes decidedly anti-Christ. That means against when I use the word anti in this context. The writer says of this person that he, quote, crucifies to himself the Son of God and puts Christ to open shame. Mm. What does that mean? It means that in turning away, his new outlook, his new adopted way, aligns more with those who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ than with anybody else. His actions and his mentality support the terrible and shameful criminal acts leveled against Christ on the day he was crucified. Apostasy goes in the opposite direction of truth, beloved, and winds up devaluing, even denying the importance of Jesus' high priestly sacrifice. The writer then illustrates the state of the apostate this way, the sad state. Verses 7 and 8. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and produces vegetation useful for those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But it yields thorns and thistle. If it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. The ground is the person. The rain which falls on it is God's gospel truth. And this combination will have one of two outcomes. The ground will receive a blessing, uh, the blessed rain that comes from God, and either produce good fruit or produce thorns and thistles. The person who rejects God's truth produces a lifestyle that is really an affront to God and more so than the average unbeliever because he mishandled the blessings shown to him rejected the truth given to him. This is a serious matter. It's not one that we take lightly. Let me then give you only four implications of this text, and there are more. Four that I think are really among the top, the most important. That is one. One, the local church should make sure that its evangelistic outreach is all-encompassing. What do I mean by this? It should make sure that its evangelistic outreach is all-encompassing. There have been entire Christian movements that have built their ministry on on counterfeit believers without ever knowing it, on almost Christians. The seeker movement, for example, most of you are familiar with that term, targeted seekers, people who seemed open and close to the kingdom. And that means that the church will be weak and will compromise in order to keep counterfeit Christians because counterfeits will not uh, stand the test of persecution for their faith. They need to be coddled. They need to be brought in and, and, and coerced to stay or manipulated to stay in some way. Just because a person is close to conversion from our point of view, doesn't warrant that we tailor our evangelistic efforts to such an audience. We don't know that they are close or or curious or interested in open for the right reasons. Maybe they're all that for the wrong reasons. 
And they could stay that way for the rest of their lives and die without Christ. You know, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul did not fit this description, did he? Think about that. He was not a good candidate for salvation at all. He wasn't seeking, not salvation. He wasn't sympathetic to the Christian message. That's a laugh. The only thing he was seeking were Christians to incarcerate and execute them. He was present at Stephen's persecution and execution and martyrdom. It was on the way to a destroy a seek and destroy mission that God saved him. His testimony in Galatians chapter 1 verse 13 proves this. He says, For you have heard my former way of life in Judaism, how I, I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. Who would ever think that Paul would become a Christian? He says this in Acts 9, by the way, verse 21. All those hearing him continue to be amazed, and they were saying, uh, is this not the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and, and had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? The local church needs to witness to all people in their circle of influence, not one socioeconomic group or category of people, but all of them. We, we just don't know who will become Christians. Felix wasn't looking. King Agrippa wasn't searching. But Paul gave his testimony to both of them with the obvious intention of winning them to Christ. Agrippa thought it amazing that Paul thought he could convert him in such a short amount of time. Paul's answer should direct us. I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may be what I am except for these chains. That's one implication. Here's another. There are two kinds of apostasy, and both have the same results. They just get there different ways. We've discussed this before in our church. Apostasy means to depart from orthodoxy. But an apostate can go in one of two opposite directions. One is to denounce the faith completely and have nothing whatsoever to do with it again. An apostate becomes something else. I'm a naturalist, or I'm an atheist now, or a champion for one of the mainline religions. Demas, love the world more than the faith and abandon Paul's ministry. That's what it says. The other way, however, is to redefine the faith and still call yourself a Christian, but practice your own brand of Christianity. It is a counterfeit brand. Some of the outward forms you keep, others you might modify, but all of it is empty. And this by far is the most popular of the two in the New Testament and the most dangerous because it's hard to detect. And the worst part of it is that counterfeits of the faith believe that they are genuine. There are many of these in America, and they have given a new face to the faith that has stereotyped Christianity to some degree. And being stereotyped is one, of, is one kind of persecution that we all have to contend with, sadly. Number three, stricter judgment is reserved for those who reject the Lord with the full light of the faith. With the full light of the faith. We've seen that Hebrews argues that the stricter judgment awaits those who reject the gospel after having experienced the full light of the faith and then turn resolutely from it. All unbelievers stand condemned, but those among them who stood closer to the truth stand to receive a greater punishment. This is what we read in our scripture reading this morning out of 2 Peter 2. 
Let me give you just the salient point there, verses 20 and 21. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, well, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Let me just pause there and say the first state was was being an unregenerate person. The second state is being an unregenerate person who knows better. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than have, having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Jesus himself says the same about Judas Iscariot, which, by the way, is perhaps the classic example of all of these experiences in verses 4 to 6. Everything stated in verses 4 to 6 that an, un, an almost Christian can experience, Judas Iscariot experienced. It's a great description of him. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 24, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. There is also teaching in the parable of the unfaithful servant that supports the idea of degrees of punishment, in case you're wondering. The slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will will receive many blows. But the one who did not know it and committed acts deserving of a beating will receive only a few blows. Both are condemned, different degrees of punishment. Why is this true? The parable explains, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and to whom they are entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. The last implication, then, is this. There is a message. There is a message for the one who knows the truth and has experienced the blessings of God by being with his body for a good amount of time, but has decided to wait to commit to Christ. You know people like this. Yes, I believe you. Oh, I know the Bible's true. Just not now. I'm just not ready. I'll do it later. Here's the message for such a person. You put yourself in a position where you can fall away from what you know to be true. There are those who don't commit to Christ and, and give as their reason. I'm sorry, there are those who don't commit to Christ and give as their reason. I, I'm not ready to commit my life. Or I don't want to give up certain things in my life yet. Or they might explain, I... I, I I plan to trust Christ someday, but just not now. There are too many things that I want to experience, the goals that I want to fulfill before I give everything up for Christ. Now, there is, of course, a fair amount of misunderstanding about the faith that is evidenced in these excuses, of course. And we don't have time to deal with it, but more to the point is that you should never delay in embracing God's gift of salvation. For one thing, there is no guarantee that you will be around to trust Christ even tomorrow. For another, and here's what comes out of Hebrews 6, and here's the message for the one who wants to wait. 
according to Hebrews 6, there is a greater chance that you will fall away from the truth, not gravitate toward it. The longer you wait, the more opportunity there is for your heart to grow cold and hard. So today is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation.